Okay. So this is the um, Christian theology class, and we're start starting our new handout, Lesson 8, on salvation. And we'll be on this handout for many weeks to come. This is, uh, so we are shifting gears a little bit. The last several weeks we've been talking about anthropology and homardiology. So the study of man, looking at the composition of man, how God created us, and uh, the implications of all that. And then homardiology is the study of sin, and just looking into doctrines like uh, the original sin, uh, total depravity, the nature of sin, and how it impacts um, us in our relationship to God and to one another. And all of that is important, I believe, to talk about before you get to the doctrine of salvation. We, uh, which is, you know, if you want to know the fancy $10 word, soteriology. And all those big words are based off of the Greek term that you find in the New Testament for those. So like hamar theology, hamart is part of the Greek word for sin. Anthropos is part of the word for mankind, man. So that's where those big fancy words come from. But uh, what comes to your guys' mind? I mean, this is, this is kind of a big topic. What comes to your mind when you hear the word salvation, when you think about your own salvation? What are some words? There's a lot. Nothing comes to your guys' mind? Free gift. Free gift. Cross. Relief. Relief. Rescue. Rescue. I like it. Keep it coming. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Being saved. Being saved. Cleansed. Cleansed. Yeah. Undeserved? That's good. There's a lot of words. We sang a song, 10,000 Reasons. I mean, there could be 10,000 words you could put up here and that all relate to the word salvation, but what are some other words that come to mind? Blood. Blood? Jesus. Jesus, that's a good one. <laughs> Hope. Hope. Powerful. Powerful. How about faith? You say belief, too, similar? Undeserved grace. Yep, we got undeserved. Grace, though, we don't have that one up here. Dependence. What's that? Dependence. Dependence, okay. About repentance. Conquer. What's that? Conquer? Conquer, yeah, like conquered sin and death. Yeah. About sanctification. Let's see if I can spell it sanctity. 
Any other shun words you can think of? Justification. Yeah, that's a good one. Do a whole theological class just on the shun words. Uh, love. What's that? Love. Love? Yeah. Glorification? How about election? Oh, that's, that's a dirty that's a dirty word in some circles. <laughs> Decrees. You think about salvation, you might even think about the word sin, right? What we're saved from. Uh, the idea is we could go on and on and on and on and on, but look at your uh, introduction there on the page one of your handout. When the Philippian jailer asked the question, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas responded with, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. With a, with a singular straightforward sentence, Paul and Silas present a saving message which would change the Philippian jailer forever. The simple phrase contains words pregnant with meaning, believe, Lord, Jesus, and saved. Each of these terms gives birth to profound realities which make striking statements about God, Jesus, man, and sin. Accepting salvation is a relatively simple exercise, but understanding the glory and grandeur of this miraculous event will take more than a lifetime. So with this study, we will introduce the glorious truths of our salvation so that we can spend the rest of our lives beholding the wonders of this precious doctrine. So I think a good question to ask then, if, if salvation is so simple that it could be summarized in eight words, why do, should we study it deeper, more deeply, when that can often lead to divisiveness over certain doctrines? If it's such a simple thing that Paul and Silas didn't mention a lot of this, there's no mention of foreknowledge, election, calling. It's real simple. So why, why dive deeper into it? Greater understanding and appreciation. Yeah, and greater understanding and appreciation. God wants to... God wants us to? Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of things happen at that point. A lot of things happen at the, you know, in salvation. Uh-huh. To know Him better? To know Him better? Yes. Yeah, it goes along with what Mandy said as well. Yeah, absolutely. Not just that God wants us to do it, but He wants us to do it because He wants us to know Him better, growing our love for Him. I think there's a lot of other uh, benefits that come along with this, and we we you probably already ex have experienced them. Um, just always, maybe we don't always make the connection, but um, your understanding of how to share the gospel is enhanced and greatly uh, improved as you grow in the knowledge of God's word and understanding of salvation. You grow to understand why people reject the gospel when you study it. 
you grow to understand assurance of salvation when you understand how it functions and how God operates in it. Your security, your feeling, understanding of security in your salvation. There's just a lot of different things here. Um, you know, a lot of these words that we put up here, uh, I like to think about it as like a diamond. So a diamond, if I drew one up on the board and did a good job, it would be uh, have lots of facets, lots of sides. And so salvation, you could, we have one big salvation diamond, and there's all these facets to it that are in the Bible, that as we turn the diamond, as we turn God's Word and study, we see all these scintillating, beautiful facets that make up the diamond of salvation. Now, of course, a lot of these things we're going to study, you don't have to uh, understand to be saved. You don't have to, you don't, for sure, most people don't understand a lot of these things upon conversion, right? The uh, simple statement of what must I do to be saved, simple yet profound, is believe in the Lord Jesus and what it means to be called and elected and foreordained and all. No, he didn't say that. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, right? The thief on the cross probably didn't have a super uh, refined understanding of the Trinity and the doctrines of salvation and grace and stuff like that but he had the prerequisites of responding to Jesus in faith. That's enough. So yes, as we uh, go and dive into this, it's going to um, enhance our understanding, which ought to lead to worship. Theology is meant to lead to doxology. And then doxology is also then meant to lead to uh, practicing are what we know and believe. But uh, a good passage to remind us about that is Romans chapter 11. Romans 1 through 11 is all theology. And then 12 through 16 is the practical exhortations. Uh, we, we, we talk about having a balance in the Christian life between what we call the indicatives of Scripture and the exhortations of Scripture. So the indicatives are what statements of truth about what God has done, and the indicative, and then the commands, the imperatives of Scripture, are what we are to do. And you have to have both. So we live, we obey God's commands because of what He has done in our lives, because of the indicatives. So Romans 11 is all this theology, and then Paul ends his theological treatise with this in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That is Paul's circuit breakers popping in his mind. After thinking about all this rich theology of the gospel, it just causes him to worship. How awesome is God? That's why we teach this class. That's why we talk about these things. Uh, it's not to just pump your brains full of uh, you know, seminary-style knowledge and all those things so you can go out smarter or so that you can go out and have a Facebook argument and debate or whatever, you know, is to lead to worship of God and to equip you for the work of ministry.
So it's interesting, though, you know, we, we mentioned uh, just in that Acts 16.31, how simple eight words can be so pregnant, so full of meaning. Another good passage that is similar is 1 Corinthians 15. If you're ever talking with uh, particularly people from a cult like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, this is a super great passage to go to to point out their lack of hope. They are going to come to your door and say they have a message of hope. And this, all, all you have to do, I love this. This is, this is asking people questions with a genuine interest in wanting to know what they say is such a great way to get into spiritual conversations without coming across as aggressive and pushy. I just ask them, so tell me, what, what, is, the, what is the gospel? What is it that gives you hope? And just I'll let, give them the floor. And they'll sit there and give me their spiel, which is not going to sound anything like the gospel. And then I say, hey, can we look at 1 Corinthians 15 together? Let's look at this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel uh, that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received." Here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There you go. That's the gospel. Paul lays it out there. You can't mistake it. He's like, this is the gospel, the one that you are being saved by if you hold fast to it. And so then if I'm talking to a cult, I'll say, how come your presentation didn't sound anything like that? This is the gospel. But it's interesting, even though it's short, it's pregnant with meaning, it's loaded. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So it's like, you know, when you have an iceberg, you see the tip, but you don't always see how massive it is underneath. And it's that phrase, in accordance with the scriptures that makes it so big and so mighty. There's so much behind that phrase. You think about like, okay, Jesus died for our sins. Why did he have to do that? In accordance with the scriptures. Everything that we know in the Bible that talks about sin. Okay, well, why did it have to be Jesus? In accordance with the scriptures. All the things that the scriptures have, the Old Testament particularly, have to talk about. Um, why, did he, why was he buried and why did he raise from the dead? Again, in accordance with the scriptures. This is just like, whew, this is a huge amount of knowledge underneath. So the same thing with our, as we talk about salvation. We know the tip of the iceberg. We know the basics of the gospel. And now we're going to look under the water. And we're going to see this giant, massive ice cube underneath. That's going to be awesome. So that's what we're going to be doing in this section. But before we get to Roman numeral 2 on that page 1, I think there's a little bit more um, things we should talk about before we even get to that question, why we accept salvation. I think first we need to just ask, what is salvation? It seems like it's a, you know, Maybe duh, maybe obvious, like I don't know what salvation is, but I think it's worth to, do you know that there's six different words that the Bible uses to describe salvation? Six different words? Again, it's like that, you know, a diamond, all these different facets. If the Bible uses a lot of words to, to describe something, it does it for a reason. You know, in college, if I wrote an essay, I would fill a lot of fluff to get to that page requirement, or that page requirement you know? 
It's like, I, 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 don't, I don't care about this assignment. I'm just trying to pass. It's like, but God's Bible is not full of fluff. Every word, every sentence, every clause, preposition, direct object is there for a reason to convey a certain meaning. And so if there's six different words to describe salvation, well, I want to understand why God uses six different words to describe it. So I want you guys to help me look up some verses. Let's look at this first one here. Someone look up Exodus 14.30, and someone look up Psalm 3.8. And once you have it, just jump in. 14.30, Okay, so a simple word there, right? God saved Israel. Saved Israel in the context of bringing them out of Egypt and saving them from the Egyptian army that was in pursuit. Okay, who's got Psalm 3 8? From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Hey, deliverance. So, in one of the Hebrew words, which in those two passages is the same word. It can be used to mean saved or delivered. And in the context there, we're, we're seeing context of not just a spiritual salvation, but even a salvation from threats, right? Okay, uh, Exodus 18, 9 through 10. Someone look that up. And somebody look up Psalm 39, 8. Eighteen, nine, and ten. Mm-hmm. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, "Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians." Okay. Yeah. So, see a different Hebrew word there used, and it's often translated as rescue. Who's got Psalm thirty-nine, eight? Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Hey, again, another synonymous word there, deliver, can also be translated as deliver. Uh, The greater emphasis of that word, though, uh, that we see in the Hebrew is uh, to rescue. Okay, another word that's used in Exodus 13, 15. Someone look that up. And someone look up one of my favorites, Psalm 49, 7-9, and 15. Who's got Exodus 13, 15? Maybe everyone was looking up Psalm 49. Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go. The Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeemed each of my firstborn sons. Yo, that's a big word for salvation. Redeem. Redeem. Okay, who's got the Psalm 49, 7 through 9, and verse 15? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the fifth. And then verse 15? 
for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich. God will ransom my soul from the power of Joel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think verse 15 my, in my translation says, but God, so after the ver- earlier verses you read where it's like, who can ransom his soul? Who can pay the debt to God that he owes? And the answer is rhetorical, no one can. Then verse 15, this is the gospel in the Old Testament, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So redeem and ransom. Another very important, powerful words there in the gospel. Okay, uh, another word that's used in the Old Testament for salvation is uh, uh, in Exodus 6, 6 through 7. Someone look that up. And in Job 19, 25. And I've just given two verses for each of these words. There are lots of verses in the Old Testament that use these words. But just, just giving you a smattering, a sample. Yep. Therefore say to Benai Israel, I am Adonai, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. I will, I will take you, I will take you to myself as a people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. So again, we have another word there, and you're like, well, Tyson, we already have the word redeem. But there's a special, very sweet nuance to this Hebrew word, and it is the idea of a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer. And so the, the greatest Old Testament illustration of that would be Ruth. Ruth, right? Boaz was Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And so God, in Exodus 6, 6-7, portrays himself as Israel's kinsman redeemer. And so there's not just this idea of paying a price to save you, but this idea of paying a price to have a relationship with you. So uh, who's got Job, uh, the 1925? I know that my redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. My Redeemer lives. So that's a capital R. God is our Redeemer. And so when you think about that title for God, it's using that special Hebrew word, Ga'al, which is this idea of kinsman Redeemer. Not just a purchaser, but a purchaser of you so that He can have an intimate relationship with you. Okay, the fifth word we'd see for salvation, it'd be in, I got Job 33, 4. Someone can read that. And then Isaiah 57, 15. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Okay. Give life. Isaiah 57, 15. For this is what the high end, the lofty one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy, lives in high and lofty, lives in holy high, high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you read the whole verse, yep. To revive the spirit of the lofty and to receive, revive the heart of the contrite. That's it. Revive the spirit. 
So there's a, ver uh, a verb there in the Old Testament in speaking of salvation in terms of giving life or reviving the Spirit. You can think of other passages like Psalm 19 that talks about how God's Word revives the soul. Uh, we think about lots of New Testament contexts in which we talk about the, how the Spirit gives life, causes us to be born again, we're made new creatures, um, and that idea. And then the sixth one, this would be the New Testament term for salvation. It's the Greek word sozo, and um, it's on the front of your page, on your handout there. When Paul and Silas says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be sozoed, saved. Yes, I took a Greek word and added English ed on the end of it. <laughs> You'll be sozoed. No. So that word uh, in the Greek, though, can be used to, to refer to a lot of different things. So um, uh, different ways to be saved. But that's the New Testament term. New Testament, saved. Okay, so then the idea then, we kind of have a really sweet picture here. A lot of nuances to what salvation is. We're saved, delivered, God rescues, He redeems, He pays a ransom, He is our kinsman redeemer, He gives life when we are dead. Think about like uh, the valley of the dry bones and how He brings the skeletons to life uh, and puts flesh on them, revives the spirit, and, gen and then the general term in the New Testament for salvation. So I always like to talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament because whenever you read the New Testament, those folks had only the Old Testament. That was their Bible at the time. And so the theology of Paul and all the apostles and everyone who wrote a book in the New Testament, their theology comes from the Old Testament. So when you have just one word in the Greek, context is going to help you determine what's being talked about. But all of this is usually packed into that one word. That's what they're thinking about. That's when, the, when Paul is writing, when John is writing his gospel, when Mark and Luke and Matthew and uh, Peter are writing their epistles. That, that's what they're thinking about. And so it's so important to have a good understanding of the Old Testament, and it'll help you have a better understanding of the New. But what are we saved from? I've got a couple verses here. Oftentimes we just think about salvation in terms of you know, being saved from hell spiritual salvation, but that's just a, a little narrow if we only think about it that way. So someone look up Jeremiah 14, 8. O hope of Israel, its Savior in times of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who stays only a night? So what do we say from in that passage? What word does he say? Distress. distress. Trouble. Has God ever delivered you from distress and trouble? Difficult times? I hope so. I'm sure you may not be aware of it, but He has. Every day I think there's lots of things that uh, could uh, wipe us off the face of this earth pretty quickly. And yet God is the one who sustains and upholds us by the very word of His power. Delivers us from countless situations. I think about every time I drive in Chicago and come back home alive. I'm like God delivered me from so many things I didn't even know. I just it's better that I not know. But he's always always at work. Uh, Psalm six four through five. Turn, O Lord, deliver my wife. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, you will give me grace. 
Okay, and this one's a little harder because we didn't read for context. Um, but knowing as often uh, the kind of things that David faced uh, as a king uh, and ruler, what do you think he was uh, asking God for salvation from? What did he want to be saved from? Any guesses? Saul. Saul? Yeah, that's just one. Who else didn't like him? His son. His son. His own son hated him, wanted to right, stage a coup against him. Okay, so his enemies. God delivers us, saves us from enemies. Okay, Psalm 51 14. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will send to me righteousness. What's he save us from in that? Guilt. Yeah, guilt, sin, condemnation. Another way you could say it. Okay, Romans 5, 9 through 10. Sword drill day, right? Mm -hmm. Love hearing the sound of flipping pages. We have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Mm -hmm. So, doing what are we saved from in that verse? God's wrath. Yep. The wrath of God. Okay, 1 Thessalonians uh, 1.10 actually is a similar passage, so we'll just skip that one for now. Uh, let's just say the same thing. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Okay, so what are we delivered from in that verse? Domain of darkness. Yep. And what's the opposite of the domain of darkness, according to that verse? Kingdom of the Son. Kingdom of the Son. Nope. The idea, you think about all the New Testament passages like uh, Romans 6, John chapter 8 in particular, um, that talks about, or even like uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, that portray unbelievers as un, uh, living under the power of the prince of the power of the air, under Satan, right? Satan is given a certain level of power and uh, over the earth, and it, it, the domain of darkness it would be his kingdom, uh, we uh, march to his beat and, uh, um, that he drums and when we are in our unbelieving state. But God delivers us from that and um, we become citizens of his kingdom and no longer Satan's. So last one, Matthew 9, 21. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Okay, that's the context of the woman who had the discharge of blood for many, many, many years. And she said, if I just touch the cloak, I'll be saved. I'll be sozoed. Right? So it's interesting, right? It's a word for salvation, but used in reference to 
illness. Okay? So context is always important when right, you're studying it. So, and sometimes uh, the word can be used to refer to being healed from illness. And then when Jesus says, your faith has made you well, if you can hear that refrain in the Gospels, he's not just always talking about physical wellness. Your faith has sozoed you, saved you, not just from an illness, but from, uh, from a spiritual standpoint as well. So there you go. That is a general overview of the Bible's treatment and view of salvation. It is a sweet thing to see all the different ways in which God rescues us and saves us and all the different things that He rescues us from. Uh, so many causes to celebrate and praise Him every day of our lives. Um, and then, like I said, it's so important to just understand these nuances. Um, when you come across, when you're reading your Bible, I always think about, particularly when I read the Psalms, there's always lots of different names for God. Or you come across these different descriptions of God, they're there for a reason. They communicate something about Him. If it's using His name, Yahweh, you see usually LORD in all caps, it's conveying a, a truth. It's not just like, I like this name of God today. I'm going to use this one. If it's you know just God generically, Elohim, it's conveying something about God. Same thing with these different words for salvation. If you see these words, they're conveying a, a, a distinct aspect of God's saving power in people's lives. And so you take note of that as you study and, and really savor um, the, the meaning in there. Uh, another uh, example of the kind of using lots of different words would be actually sin. The, the Old Testament uses lots of different words to talk about sin. There's not just one word for sin. And there's kind of the idea like one word for sin is this idea of like missing the mark. Like maybe conveys this idea of like you're trying. You're just not quite getting there, right? There's another one that's like this idea of transgress, right? So oftentimes you see the word sin, but sometimes you see someone has transgressed. And that Hebrew word is the idea that God draws a line in the sand and says, don't cross, and you go, oh yeah? How about that? It's like, oh, that's real serious. So when you come across that word transgress in the Bible, it's talking about serious rebellion against God, right? So there's lots of these different um, words that, again, have special, sweet nuances for that help us just understand God's Word so much more. But again, before we even get to that first question on, on page one, I still think there's more we need to talk about first. Like, how are you saved? We understand now what salvation is, but how does God make it happen? Before we get to the why you're saved, we've got to know how it, how it happens the grounds is another way. Like, what's the basis for salvation? What are the grounds upon which we stand? Isaiah forty three eleven. I'll turn there if you'd like, and I'll read it. Isaiah forty three eleven. God says, "I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no savior." Yahweh declaring that He alone is the Savior. But then in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, handy there to remember, 4311, 2.11, for, uh, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Well, there's only one. Who is it? Who is Christ the Lord. So salvation only can happen when one person does it. 
and that is God. Only God. It is the sole work of God. And you're like, really? Only God can do it? Luke chapter 18, verse 27. You have the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and, you know, asks the, the great question we wish our unbelieving neighbors would just come up and ask us, right? What must I do to be saved? It's like slow pitch over home base, like underhanded, softball. Like, all right. And Jesus talks to him and gets to the heart of the issue because this guy thought he could be saved by doing good works. And Jesus tries to point out to him that it's not just seeking to obey, but following Jesus, believing in him, serving him. He gets extended. The personal invitation says, go home and sell the stuff you have, which is not the most important thing. He says, follow me. And the guy is sad and walks away. And Jesus talks to his disciples because at that time in history, wealth was believed to be a sign of God's favor. And Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of a God than for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the, the disciples are baffled because everyone just thought, if you were rich, you were on God's team. And then Jesus says these words, Luke 18, 27, but he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Salvation is impossible to accomplish on our own. God is the one who does it. He alone is the Savior. John 1.13 is another place that is a good reminder, sobering reminder, though, as well. 1.13, um, let me back up to 12. But to all who did receive Him, Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood. So, you know, just because you were born in Israel doesn't automatically grant you salvation. That's why he says that. Nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. There is only one Savior, God. God alone, Jesus. God initiated a blueprint to bring about this kind of salvation, this kind of deliverance from these things before time even began. Revelation 13, 8. Revelation 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before. And it's ta they're talking about uh, worshiping not God, right? This is, this is right, worshiping the beast. So all who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. So before God even created the earth, before he even created time, God had a plan to deliver, to save, to rescue people, and he wrote their names in a book. He's a poetic description. I don't think there's a necessarily a real physical book that God has. The idea is communicating is that though in the mind of God, he has chosen those he's, he knows those whom he's going to save. Don't think God needs to pull up a book like a Rolodex and go through and make, make sure I got your name on this list here. For 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. 
2 Timothy 1, 9. Talking about God. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus, when? Before the ages began. Before the ages began, before time even existed, God had a blueprint. He had a plan in place. Uh, we could also spend some time, we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, but foreknowledge, all right, that's a term that's often misunderstood. Um, it's often confused with this idea of foresight, that God looks down time and sees what's going to happen and then says, ah, I see this person's going to choose to believe, so I know that this person. But foreknowledge is not about what, as you'll see in Romans chapter 8, but who God foreknows people, not facts. It's like uh, I heard a good illustration from a pastor just uh, two days ago, I think, and it was like a NCAA bracket, right? When we fill out our brackets and do our bracketology for March Madness, we look at all this information and stats about the teams, or maybe you just choose based on mascots that you like, but whatever it is, but we look at information and we make our determination. Well, this team's doing pretty good. Well, this guy got hurt, so they're missing their star player, so I don't think they're going to win, and we try to guess. But the way it goes with God is whatever he writes in the brackets is what's going to happen. He doesn't look down the corridors and see, well, this guy loses, so I'm going to write it. No, he says, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and this is who I'm going to have in the championship, and they're going to win because I decree it. That's foreknowledge. That's foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is relational. It's about knowing somebody. God chooses to have a relationship with someone. So we'll talk more about that, get to those verses. But this all then speaks to how people are saved, to God's plans for implementing salvation. But you can't talk about that without talking about Jesus' atonement. That is the grounds, the basis for salvation. God's blueprint that He uh, decreed, that He planned before time even began, was for His Son to atone, to cover to satisfy God's wrath. We talked a lot about this in our last uh, semester as we were talking about um, theology proper, the study of God. We, talked to, we studied Jesus and who He is and the works that He has done. And so we talked about the atonement. Look at Hebrews 9, 11. We won't spend a lot of time talking about it this morning. We'll just do a couple of highlighted verses here. So Hebrews 9, Verse 11 through 12. It says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Jesus, as a part of God's sovereign plan, fulfilled the office of a high priest by offering a sacrifice to God that perfectly satisfied His wrath, and that sacrifice was Himself. He was both the high priest 
and the lamb. It's like, just kind of blows your mind. It's just like, what? Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That is how, that is the grounds of salvation, the propitiation. Jesus' sacrifice propitiates. What that means is that it satisfies God's wrath. It satisfies God's demands and requirements for justice. That is why it's amazing. Chapter 4, verse 5 says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. Is that, is God, how does God, who is holy, justify an ungodly person? That usually makes you an unrighteous judge. If you take somebody who's a sinful criminal and say, No, you've got a good record. You're fine. You can go. You can't do that and be righteous, but God is both the just and the justifier of the ungodly because he satisfied his wrath by pouring it out on his son on the cross. Jesus' death was what we call a substitutionary atonement. He ransomed himself. He paid the ransom, not to Satan, that's a bad theory uh, that does not come from the Bible. He satisfied and paid God's demands. Matthew 20, 28 reminds us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So who did Jesus die for? Who, if we know this is the grounds for salvation, that his death is necessary, what did his death accomplish? Who did he propitiate for? Who did he buy? Right, we talk about uh, redeeming. So there's the kinsman redeemer, but then this other redeeming ransom language is like, it's, it's market, commercial language, buying something. Like you redeem a coupon, redeeming people with his blood. Who did he redeem? What did his death accomplished. There's a couple different views that people have, and um, you, you, you might in this room have people in different uh, sides of this that you might say, as I read these views, you might go, oh yeah, that's where I'm at. Uh, there's some people who would say that Jesus' death um, accomplished uh, salvation for everyone in a sense of it makes everybody savable, right? That person would acknowledge that, yes, I know Jesus died for all, and at the same time, there's still going to be people, people who reject him and go to hell. So that would be one view. as the idea that Jesus didn't die just for a certain people, but his death was for everybody. Um, some passages people would go to for that, and I'm not saying this is a correct interpretation of these verses, but like John 3.16, right, it's a very famous one, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life, right? So, the world. Jesus died for the world. That means everybody, right? Well, it gets a little hairier when you understand that the Apostle John uses the word world to mean lots of different things. 
Well, we can go to uh, maybe next week, we'll have time, and we'll look at one passage in John 17, where in two verses, he uses the word world several different in several different ways to mean different things. Or you think about, we use the word world to different, we talk about, that person, he's of the world. Well, what do I mean by that? Unsaved. Unsaved, right? You're living like the world, right? Just kind of this idea. Or we can say, but I live in the world. What do I mean by that? creation. Yeah, God's creation. I live here on this earth. I don't live on another planet. I live in this world, right? Uh, so just there, you have two instances of different uses of, of the word world, but uh, John even uses it even more. Uh, some other passages would be like 1 John 2, 2, which says, you know, uh, Jesus is the propitiation not just for us, but for all. So what do you do with the word all? Is that like every single person in the world? Or is that word all? It can mean different things. It can mean everybody without exception, every single person in the whole world. Or it can mean every person without distinction. And so we think about John speaking to a Jewish audience who, for the majority of history, believed and were taught by God that in order to be saved, you had to become a part of Israel. Everyone else outside of Israel was a Gentile, dirty, pagan, heathen. But the, God was still merciful. If, you, if you're a pagan, if you're a heathen outside of Israel and you want to come worship Yahweh, you come in and you have to basically become a Jew externally. And so there was this idea that everybody outside of Israel, not a chance. You're not going to make it. You're not going to be saved. But then when the new covenant came in, Jesus is saying, no, there's no more Jew. There's no more Greek. There's no more barbarian, no more Scythian, no more slave, no more free man, no more distinction in who gets salvation. It's available to all in that sense. Right? So there's, there's some different ways to talk about that. So that's one view. The other view would be that Jesus, he propitiated, he died, he atoned for only the people that he chose to save. That would be uh, often called limited atonement. You might hear that. I prefer the term particular redemption in that, um, that Jesus was particular in who he was atoning for. Uh, a couple of example passages of that view would be like, um, well, Israel. Israel is a big, giant object lesson of God's particular love. God set to choose one person to make a giant nation out of to love. I'm not going to love the other nations. I'm going to love this people. That's very particular, right? It's limiting his love. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 is a good passage to remind us of God's particular love there um, expressed towards Israel. He says this in chapter 7 to keep them from being uh, high and mighty and arrogant, like, you know, we're God's people. Yeah, we deserve it. We're awesome. And God says in Deuteronomy 7, It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So it's like, don't get so high and mighty. It's not because there was anything good in you or awesome about you. Right? You look through the history of, of Abraham and Jacob and all of Jacob's sons, and it's like, they're pretty awful people. But God chose them to make a nation and to love them despite themselves. The same thing is true 
I believe the biblical position is that there is a particular nature to God's salvation. Look at John chapter 10, verse 11. John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for all. No, he didn't say that. He said for, for the sheep. For his sheep. Not the sheep and the goats. For the sheep. For the sheep. Look at John 17, 9 through 10. You go through the rest of John chapter 10, you'll see more particularity in that passage. John 17, 9 through 10, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer, which is just awesome. You ever think, I wish I could be a fly on the wall to hear how Jesus prayed. Read John 17. You get to hear how Jesus prayed. And he prays distinctly for people. And he says distinctly, I'm praying for these people, not these people. So John 17, 9 through 10, he says, I am praying for them, his disciples, the immediate 12. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So there you have a very particularity. Jesus saying, I'm praying for them. And then a little later, a few verses later, he says, and I pray for all those who will believe on account of the testimony of these disciples. So he's very particular. I'm not praying for the world. I am praying for these. And he says, sanctify them. So that's part of salvation. Sanctify them. I'm not praying this for the world. I'm praying this for those whom you give have given to me. There's one other view. So we talked about uh, one view that says Jesus died for all. And those, and then the other second view, Jesus died just for what we'd say, maybe like the elect or those who will believe, um, which is what John 3.16 teaches, right? God, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes will not perish. Now, sometimes we misinterpret that because, uh, you know, some translations say whosoever. And it's kind of this idea of like potentiality. Jesus died and made everybody savable. And so whoever decides to believe then gets to be saved, but that's not what it says. The Greek says all the believing ones will be saved. And so there's no, it's this, uh, Jesus, you have to come to terms with like, the question you have to answer is, what did Jesus atone for? Did, he, uh, did Jesus die on the cross to make people savable? Or did Jesus' death actually accomplish salvation? That's the question you have to answer. But the third view is that Jesus' propitiation, Jesus' atonement, had multiple goals. That Jesus' death accomplished salvation for the elect, and then some extra benefits for unbelievers. And that's one way people try to kind of smooth over the idea that Jesus died for all. So Jesus died, when he died for unbelievers, he purchased things like delayed judgment, um, common grace, things like that. That's kind of got to do some hermeneutical gymnastics to kind of get there. And there's some really good godly people who hold those views and really good godly people who hold all the views. But we can talk about it more. I, we're out of time. But just kind of, there's one more kind of linchpin that I, that I really think settles the deal on understanding that redemption, atonement is particular in nature and it has to do with the Trinity. 
Trinitarian particular redemption, I think, believe is the biblical uh, understanding of how people are saved. And if you have questions about this, you're wrestling, you're really struggling with this, I really want to give time to answer, uh, you know, ask some questions. So write them down. Next week on Sunday, we'll start with just a real quick summary and then just open the floor to some questions. And then we'll start talking about why we're saved. And that's going to be awesome. So thanks, everybody, for paying attention and reading lots of scriptures. Thanks.